The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to St. John as recorded in chapter one, verses 43 through 51. The next day Jesus wanted to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Come and see, Philip told him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said about him, Truly here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus replied, You believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, Amen, amen, I tell you. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, John the Baptist came preparing the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. He had disciples. Some seemed to follow him full time. Some seemed to follow him part time. But after he baptized Jesus, when Jesus walked by several times over a period of a few days, he kept pointing him out and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at least for a couple of those disciples, it seems as he was saying that, he was also saying, hint, hint, get going, boys. And so it is that Andrew and John start following Jesus. Jesus officially calls them to be disciples when he talks to them about being fishers of men. But these two men, knowing they have found the Messiah, go off and do some great evangelism work. They told their family. They both told their brothers. John tells James. Andrew tells his brother, who you will know as Peter. Now Jesus has four disciples. That's where our text begins where he finds Philip, and Philip also goes off and tells somebody. You see, you and I are impure. We recognize we need to be pure to stand before a holy God. There are only two religions among mankind, just two. And sadly, a lot of Christians get confused and they slide into the most common group, which is the group that has the natural religion of our sinful nature. That teaching is, you want to be pure in your mind so that your thinking is pure in your body because if our body's pure, we're not sick. But you want to be pure in your soul so you can stand before God. And so they teach like if you have a little bit of rat poisoning in your water or a lot, you just add more water. You just do more pure things. But God doesn't say have your impurity so diluted down that I don't notice it so much. God says you can have no impurity, no matter how diluted you think it is. And so that gets us into the other religion, the true religion. 
And that's the one that admits, no matter how much you and I try, we cannot be cleansed from our sins in and of ourselves. We can't earn forgiveness. We cannot remove our impurity by doing the acts that we think are pure because that motive alone is impure and actually adds to the impurity. So true God, who was perfectly pure, became a man for you. He could not and he would not sin, although as a human being, he would feel the pains of temptation. Not only was he pure in our place, but he had to remove our impurity. And so he did what no human being, no scientific machine or principle could ever do. He washed your impurity away with his, cross, with his blood. This is why he dies on the cross and he rises victorious for you. The Holy Spirit works through that message and converts people, convicts them that it's true, and when they believe it, God, the Holy Spirit, has given them the last thing needed to make them pure. They have the Savior who's done the work, and they now have the faith that he's their Savior who has done all the work. When we share that message, we are evangelizing. But we live in a world where, like most people living in the camp that think they can make themselves pure, some even just deny that they're impure to begin with. When you point out that they are impure and they need to be made pure, they get mad at you. It's an awkward conversation. People reject you because they don't want anything to do with Jesus. So we ask the question today, looking at Philip, how do you evangelize your friends? And I'd like to point out to you as we answer that question, Philip is known for one more great evangelism. He gets to share the word of God with the Ethiopian eunuch. And so Philip really is a good example of some basics in evangelizing our friends. Because that's what Philip does. He goes off and finds his friend Nathaniel. And what does he say to him? We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What you and I call today the Old Testament, in the time of Jesus, they called Moses and the prophets. We have found the one that the word of God is all about, the one who fulfills the word of God. And Nathaniel's even gonna come to understand as John records at the beginning, just 42 verses earlier in this gospel, Jesus is the word who became flesh. Jesus is the spokesman for the Trinity because he's true God. So do you notice what Philip is actually doing here with Nathaniel? He's telling him the word and inviting him into the word. Now, what's Nathaniel's initial response? You and I get nervous when we share the word of God with friends and relatives. We go, what if they misunderstand? What if they say, what about this? And I'm not ready to answer it. Nathaniel said to him, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nothing says you come from a podunk, insignificant town than when the town's name itself transliterated into English from the Hebrew through other languages is Nazareth, but that in Hebrew means nothing. We've seen in the previous weeks in our sermon where some of the rabbis in that rejected Jesus because he was from Nazareth, and after all, the Savior was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. The Savior was born in Bethlehem. Now, Philip says everything truthfully, but there could be a great misunderstanding when he says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Because technically Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But Philip was correct. 
Jesus had lived until he went out there to begin his public ministry. He lived most of his life in Nazareth. It could have been misunderstood though. And the son of Joseph? Joseph was certainly his, as we would say in English, adoptive father. And Joseph was a fantastic father to him, but he was not Jesus's biological father. And that was one of the hangups people had. Why, this is Joseph's son. Yes, by adoption. True God became true man. There was no biological father in that miracle. Why do I point out that Philip, who spoke the truth, could be easily misunderstood? Because when I've had the opportunity to tell friends the good news of Jesus, I often walk away going, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. I should have said this more clearly. The word of God is the word of God, and the Holy Spirit works through the word of God. Let the Holy Spirit do his work, and don't beat yourself up over things like that. Make sure you are speaking the truth of the word of God, but if you want to say the exact wording, well, the Holy Spirit knows what you need. Maybe you don't, because you can't read minds. So, here we see so far an invitation to the word because of a fulfillment of the word. And I want to point out, sometimes we are blessed to plant a seed, as scripture says. And that's when you take someone who has never heard about Jesus, who's never heard about the Savior, and you get to be the one that the Holy Spirit uses to introduce that idea to them. But Nathaniel is an Israelite. Jesus even calls him a true Israelite. He knows the scriptures. So in Philip's case, he's actually more watering. You've been looking for the Messiah, and I found him. Come and see him. Come to the word and see. Now, another thing here is Nathaniel's response. Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Apologetics is what we call it when you defend the word of God against the attacks from the unbelieving world. There are people who say all kinds of things about the Bible. And for example, almost every year around Easter time, you'll have a news channel or a magazine say, archeologists have found evidence that disproves the Bible. Christian apologetics shows how that doesn't disprove the Bible and defends the Bible. Often you just have to look at the context. And the amazing thing is things like that oftentimes, they never make a big deal and make another show that goes, oops, we were wrong. It turned out being the archeologist's unbelief really tainted his understanding and this turned out to actually prove the Bible correct. Well, Philip shows himself to be one of the greatest apologetics at all time. Because when Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? He turns around and says some brilliant words. Come and see. You and I can often be afraid to share the word of God because we may be afraid that we don't know it well enough, in which case come to the word and study it more. But lots of times you don't have to be a great scientist and everything else to handle people's objections. You can say, come and see. I think that in many aspects, I was a better evangelist when I was a child than I am now. And there's reasons you could say that's wrong, but I often think about uh, on mornings when we have Sunday school and stuff, my mother hauling a carload of neighborhood kids to Sunday school. My sister and I invited all of our friends constantly. It wasn't that we knew to sit down and explain to them how Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes our impurity and he removes it completely so he takes away the sin of the world. No, it was that we simply said to our friends, hey, do you want to come to Sunday school with me? And sometimes they said, yes. We can overthink evangelism. 
hey, do you want to come to church with me? There the word will take over. So how do you evangelize your friends? You invite them to the word. But do you notice when Philip finds Nathaniel, he doesn't say, I have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. He says, we. Now it's very obvious he's talking about Andrew and John, James, Peter, and himself. But I want to point out something to you. The prophets, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were at work in this. When you wonder how to evangelize your friend, remember, you're not in this alone. When you invite them, hey, would you like to come to worship? You're not alone. If your brothers and sisters in Christ are constantly ignoring people when they come to church and have nothing ever to do with them, something's wrong. It's amazing how at times I've had friends come to worship with me and they get to talking to somebody else who may be older, more experienced, or sometimes even younger. And that person that I brought to church may be struggling with something I've never struggled with. But another brother or sister in Christ can say, I've been through a similar struggle. And here's how I found God and his word applied. You're not in this alone. Our congregation has a website that you don't even have to say in the time of COVID where we're social distancing, hey, come along and expose yourself to potentially the COVID virus. You can say, why don't you just check out our website, listen to a sermon or two. Another way that we are not alone that we can easily overlook, there are Christians who confusedly say deeds, not creeds, and they don't understand that's actually a creed that they're saying. Some of the earliest creeds, and the earliest Christian creed is the Apostles' Creed, which then became the outline for the next creed, which was designed to combat heresy, the Nicene Creed, and it would later become the outline also for the Athanasian Creed, which was also combating heresy. These are creeds that have been confessed for a thousand or more years, the Apostles' Creed for nearly 2,000 years, and so it's withstood the test of time. Now these creeds, for example, they are not the word of God. They are drawn from the word of God as kind of a cheat sheet. Does this teaching line up with this creed that has been accepted and used by Christians for a thousand years? If it doesn't, because it's drawn from the word of God, then we know that this teaching is wrong. But I'm bringing up creeds because I grew up in a town where there were several Bible-based cults that would knock on your door. And I remember them coming to the door and they would ask my father, what do you believe? And my dad, not in this alone, would start reciting the creed that he had confessed his whole life, the Apostles' Creed. Usually he didn't get through the entire creed when they would start asking him questions. Wait, I've never heard that. And then dad could refer them to portions of scripture. If he made it through the creed without interruption, it was usually after he finished, they would start saying, I have questions. The amazing thing is, because of brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the centuries, my father was not in it alone. When somebody would come to apostolize him, they started asking him questions. Now I want to share two other examples and we'll move on. Our own synod has a very basic understanding of what it teaches and preaches in that little handbook, This We Believe, which you can often find on church websites and you can find portions of it on our congregation's website. That's an amazingly short summary, a confession. It says, this is what we believe, and if anything contradicts it, it's not what we believe. But I think one of the most helpful resources in our time that has been made was printed by our own publishing house, the People's Bible Series, 
where you take a look at books of the Bible and it's written for lay people and it addresses questions that would come up on verses and difficult passages and has some of that apologetics. What I'm getting at here though is, Philip was the one to say, come and see, but he wasn't alone at it. Neither are you. You have brothers and sisters in Christ in your congregation and you have all of the Christian church and even more than that, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our triune, pure God, working for you, using you, privileging you. So we see how do you evangelize your friends? First and foremost, invite them to the Word, but also know that you're not alone. Now for the rest of this sermon, let's get into how the Word worked on Nathanael. So we start at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said about him, Truly, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What does Jesus mean, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit? The Israelites were supposed to be waiting for the coming of the Savior. But the ones who were supposed to lead the people the most in the coming of the Messiah and point him out, the ones who were supposed to keep them pure in the word of God, that was the Sanhedrin. They decided to murder Jesus because they felt he was jeopardizing their positions and jeopardizing their income. Then after deciding to murder him, then they found charges, which in their case, they said it was blasphemy because he claimed to be the son of God. But Jesus is and remains the son of God, true God who became true man. But even before Pilate, they knew that wasn't going to fly. So they came up with other charges. There were people who were more concerned about their own selves than about the love of their fellow man, the love for the word of God, the love for the Savior. But for example, the Pharisees, like so many of us today, were fooling themselves as well. The Pharisee knew he could go to the temple and make a sacrifice to be cleansed from his sin, but the Pharisee thought he was pure in and of himself. He thought that if he did, they had 600 more rules they had added to the Ten Commandments, and if he did those, then he would definitely be pure. Sadly, even in the Christian church at the medieval ages, there came to be a point where people thought you could do so many good works, so many pure things, that it could be credited to others. You're only deceiving yourself as the Pharisee was. When we find out that even our thoughts condemn us, then we have to admit that we are impure and we need somebody to purify us. So Nathan here is somebody who recognizes, I need a savior to remove the impurity of my sin and make me pure. He's not even lying to himself about that. But Nathan asks, how do you know me? Jesus has already begun to reveal the thought of Nathan's heart. Jesus answered, before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I'm sure at that time, you could probably bet that throughout the region of Israel, there were a hundred people taking a rest under the shade of a fig tree. This isn't Jesus taking a guess like some kind of a charlatan. There was something Nathaniel was thinking about. I would be willing to bet, because of Jesus' words beforehand, he was specifically thinking about the Messiah. The message was spreading. Jesus here revealed the thoughts of his mind. As Nathan will confess in a minute, you are the Son of God. See, only two people can read your mind. You and God. And as a side note, that's something to remember, because one of the greatest ways we sin against the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, is we assume we can tell what our neighbor is thinking, and then we make wrong assumptions based on that. But Jesus reveals a thought of Nathan's heart. Now, God decided that's between him and Nathaniel. God bless Nathaniel. But Nathaniel gets it. Jesus has just read his mind. 
Philip has brought him to the word of God, who is true God, the spokesman of the Trinity taking on human flesh, and Jesus does a miracle to show him, I am the Messiah. That's usually the reason why miracles were done in the New Testament, because the word of God, the New Testament, hadn't been written yet. And so it was to validate the message that you can bank that Jesus is true God, who became true man, to remove our impurity, to make us pure so that we are saved. Jesus replied, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, amen, amen, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the God of all creation. When God spoke, let there be light, and began the act of creation, Jesus, as the spokesman for the Trinity, was the one who was speaking. And when he says, you'll see heaven opened, he has command of the angels. And the disciples will see that. For example, when they're in the lake and they're afraid from the wind that they're going to be thrown overboard and drowned. And Jesus tells the wind, quiet, be still. But there's another thing. You and I are impure. If we are not 100% perfectly pure, our sin separates us from God. God knows all things, so he hears our prayers, but not as a loving father who wants to answer them, as somebody who's repulsed by our sin. But Christ has come, true God has become true man, to open wide heaven for us. He is our substitute, he is our intercessor, he's the one who makes us pure. So there's no longer a barrier between you and God. You don't have to do things in order to be pure so that God will hear you. God has made you pure. And that's why you do good things. It's why you come to the word and there you are reminded. Heaven is wide open to you. And Jesus, who is true God and became true man, he is now ruling on his heavenly throne to make all those things work to keep you in your eternal salvation. The word Jesus did the work with Nathan. So, again, we ask that question, how do you evangelize your friends? Invite them to the Word. Come and see. It's really that simple. Know that you are not alone. God is working for you. He's actually privileged you to get to share His invitation. And then let the Word of God do the work. Amen. Now to him who's able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore.